0: This scripture for today comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. This is God's word to us. Be to God. Amen. <laughs> that's fun. <clears throat> well, it's been a privilege to get to hang out with you guys uh, while David's been out, and I'm really glad that you guys are back. It's good to see you, Anna, this morning. Um, and uh, hey, listen, if you've got a Bible, open to page one. Uh, that's where we're going to be today as we jump into our study of Genesis. Um, And uh, hey, there's a lot we're going to accomplish today, so um, in order to get right to it, if you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll get started. Our God, we come to you today in the way that the Lord Jesus taught us to come to you in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pray, God, that these next 30 minutes, your name would be hallowed here. Your name would be made heavy here. More than just a pre-sermon prayer, God, I, I do ask that for all the ways that there's anxiety in this room and a lack of faith in this room or doubts, skepticism and questions, where our hearts maybe are, are cold or indifferent to Jesus, or maybe they're full of faith and full of love for Jesus. The variety of ways we're present here today, I'm asking that your name would be made heavy Draw us out where we have become callous, and draw us deeper where we're already present with you. Hallowed be thy name. Holy Spirit, would you draw us out to understanding today? I pray that you would do what Jesus told us you would do, and that's guide us into all truth. And you, he also said that you would bear witness of him, where you would point us to Jesus. I pray that we would leave today having been pointed to Jesus. Help me get in line with all of that. I want to stand in the stream where you're taking us. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. And we all said, "Amen." Bereshit bara Elohim, et hashemayim va et haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't matter whether you read the opening line of Scripture in Hebrew or in English. Or in any other language under the sun, there's not a more epic start to a story or a narrative than this. The beat drops, if I can say it that way, from the opening line. It's only seven words in the original Hebrew, but it's a world of meaning. The biblical text is prophetic from jump. It's summed up in and at the hands of not of many gods, but of Elohim. The beginning is filled with wonder. Just think of it, everything you've ever experienced. Everything you've ever taken in with the senses that you have. Every sunset, every sunrise, the vastness of the ocean, every beautiful mountain vista, those glorious 30 degree drops in temperature in Oklahoma. All of it, every bit of it. Who did this? Elohim did. Elohim did all of this. Well, then if he did this, then what must he be like? You see, the beginning's filled with wonder. It's also filled with hope. The beginning is filled with hope. Our origin isn't random. You're not an accident. You're not a surprise. Our origin is thoughtful. It's intensely thoughtful. The creator is distinct from his creation, but he's not detached from it. He delights in it, and he's involved in it. You see, the beginning, it's prophetic. It's filled with wonder. It's filled with hope. And when we come to the book of Genesis, especially these early chapters, maybe more especially the opening chapter, what we're dealing with is origins. JJ covered that last week. We're dealing with origins. We're drawn out to ask some of the most important, some of the most fundamental questions that have been asked since the beginning and that need to be asked over and over again because we're prone to forget them. Questions like this, who am I? Who are you? Who are you really? Why are you here? What are you for? What am I for? What is all this for? Who am I? And why do I exist? And who determines that? Who determines that? Those are big questions. And so our text for today is the entirety of the creation narrative. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. And listen, guys, what's before us today is an absolute Masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. And I won't be able to cover everything. We're not going to walk through this passage sort of verse by verse or line by line, but more theme by theme, pulling out its tenor and tone. And we're going to work through it around three turns God and the beginning, the heavens and the earth, and then thirdly, goodness, blessing, and rest. God and the beginning, the heavens and the earth. Goodness, blessing, and rest. Let's get to the first. I want you to notice, again, those first four words that really serve to drive not just the opening of the Bible, but the entire Bible. And here it goes. In the beginning, God. Stop there. You see, it's no accident that God is the subject of the opening sentence in the Bible. In case there's any speculation, who's the main player in this story? From the opening, all bets are off. The entire chapter is... Dominated by Elohim. Dominated. God is mentioned by name 35 times in this opening chapter. Just by looking at your opening page of scripture, his name pops off the page all over the place. One scholar put it this way the passage, indeed the book, is about him, first of all. To read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. It's to misread it. I and mean, one of the things that's really important for how we understand Genesis. Or any other book of the Bible, is you've got to remember that yes, this book was written for you, for your edification, for your upbuilding, for your understanding. For it was written for you, but it was not originally written to you. You and I are not the original audience that Moses had in mind. The original audience was post-exodus Israel. Think of the setting here: Israel had been enslaved to Egypt for four hundred years. Over four generations, enslaved to Egypt, God has just set them free, released them from their captors. Have that, old, that, that beautiful moment where they're going through the Red Sea and God swallows their enemies in the rushing waters, and they're now in the wilderness, and it's in this time period that Moses pins this book, and they receive it, and in that moment, they're wondering, hey, where are we going? We're in the wilderness. We're glad we're not in Egypt anymore, but, but where are we going? In many ways, they're wondering how they got there, where they come from, and how to now to make a life for themselves as freed people. And so what Moses is trying to do is he's connecting the dots for them. Listen, the God that's just delivered you from Egypt, the God that's now meeting us here at Sinai, is also the same God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the stories you've been telling yourself these 400 years in slavery. And that God of your fathers is also, is also, guys, the same God of creation. He's helping them trace their story backward to understand that Elohim has been at the center of this all along, even from the very beginning. And so at this time, Moses is writing, and the Israelites would have been raised on the popular creation stories, the, 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 crea- the, the popular mythologies of Babylon and Mesopotamia, these stories of the epic of Atrahasis, Enuma Elish, and the epic of Gilgamesh and others. And all of these stories had their own creation stories. They, 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 they had their own even flood narratives, their own flood accounts. And so what Moses is doing as he writes this, aware of those stories, at every point of Genesis 1, he's writing in prophetic defiance of the gods they've learned about to this point. You see, those stories talk about many gods. And yet Genesis proclaims Elohim alone. Those stories talk about divine spirits and creational matter, how they've always existed side by side. But Genesis rejects that kind of pantheism and proclaims that God is distinct from creation and creation is dependent on Him. In ancient mythologies, they understood the sun and the moon and the stars and sea creatures as powerful gods themselves to be worshiped. But Genesis says those things are just merely creatures. The scholars even point out that one of the things that Moses does is he even avoids using the terms sun and moon so that his original readers wouldn't misunderstand them to be gods. In verse 16, he just calls them the greater and the lesser light to further highlight the majesty of Elohim. You see, God stands alone as supreme He stands alone as sovereign. He stands alone as true. He has always been. He has no beginning. And yet with creation, there is a beginning. And it's all of his doing. He is the living God. He is as supreme today as you hear my voice as he was at the beginning of all of it. And here's what this means. You can't escape him. All of this means you can't escape him. Listen, you won't escape him. Why? Because this is his world. This is his world. The breath you're breathing right now was offered to you and is being sustained by God. You can't escape him. You won't escape him. And that's really good news. This opening line keeps moving. In the beginning, God created, this is what he did, the heavens and the earth. The scope of God's creative work, it touches everything. This phrase, heavens and the earth, is a Hebrew phrase that means totality. And so think of it. Every speck of dust in the millions of galaxies of the universe, it belongs to him. It's his. It's his doing. Charles Spurgeon once said, there's not a single molecule bouncing in the cosmos apart from the command of our God. And so we're told two things about the creative power of God in this passage. Number one, it's unrivaled. It's unrivaled. The verb create in verse one is an interesting word in Hebrew, the word bara. And throughout the Old Testament, this, when this word shows up, it's only used in reference to God. It's used six times in this creation account. The idea is to say, only God truly creates. Only God truly creates. He takes the formless void and the darkness of the deep in verse two and he brings order to the chaos. One scholar talks about it like this. It is God's transcendent freedom to bring into being what he wills, to bring form out of what was formless, to give order where there was disorder, shape and pattern and beauty to what was as yet waste. And we need to take in that this is what creation means. It is God's work to make things ordered and beautiful. And this is the way God is. He brings into being things that are not. So the first thing we see is that God's creative power is unrivaled. The second thing is so beautiful. It comes forward simply at his word. Ten times in this chapter, we get this phrase, and God said. Eight times we get this command, let there be. And every time we hear the resolved, and it was so. The biblical picture of creation is not where there are these forces struggling back and forth, and there was this chaos and then outcomes from that creation. Instead, it's that it takes form and it stands firm, simply at the command of God. And so what we move from here is into the days of creation, and this is where people like to debate. Up to this point, you're hearing what I'm saying. and If you've been around the Christian confession at any length of time at all, you simply agree and you're nodding your head. But this is where people like to debate when we get to the six days of creation. Are we talking about six literal days? Are we talking about six metaphorical days? Are we talking about six geological ages? If I believe the biblical narrative, does that mean that evolutionary theories have been upended? Does that mean I can't hold to anything about Bible and science? Others will say, no, 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 don't even mess with that part of the argument. Notice all the parallelism. Notice all the refrains of this passage. This is poetry. It shouldn't be read that way at all. This is poetry. Others would say, no, it's not poetry. This is, this is narrative prose. This is historical narrative. And others would say, no, it's both pro- poetry and prose. Lots of debate here. And people can get really hot in these debates because they have a whole system of belief built on whatever position they hold and to sort of pull the thread on any of that means their whole faith system collapses. So they can get really excited about these conversations. Maybe you've been a part of them. And anyone who doesn't agree with you is wrong, clearly. And they don't take the Bible as seriously as you take the Bible, at least often that's the thought. Let me just say no one has ever come to faith in Jesus because you want a creation argument. Right? Like, we're getting hot about these things, but that's not ever just going you know I'm going to all of a sudden bow the knee to Jesus because of your view on creation. And here's the problem with all of those debates. Moses wasn't writing for science. Moses wasn't a science teacher. And he also wasn't writing to interact with modern Western philosophies. Modern Western philosophies interact with what Moses is doing, but that's not who he was, those weren't his talking partners. Remember, he was writing to a post-Exodus Israel to show them and to show us that the God of your salvation is also the God of creation. And so for the original Hebrew readers, they would have been reading this creation account far more interested in the meaning of it all than the method of it. They're not reading for method, how did it go down? They're asking why questions. We often ask how questions, but they were asking why questions. There's another scholar who speaks to it like this. The Hebrew mind, what mattered about time was not so much the order of things happening, but the significance that moments held. And so a great example of understanding this is the way that these days are structured. So you know day one, right? On day one, you get the separation of darkness and light. On day one, you get night and morning, evening and morning on the first day. But you and I aren't introduced into the moon and the sun until day four. So you have darkness and light and evening and morning, but you don't get the, the moon and the sun until day four. If this were about order, if this were about method, you surely would get sun and moon on day one, but you don't. So it's not so much about how it all went down, but the meaning of it all. So what you have in the six days of creation is more about rhythm. It's more about liturgy of God both forming the earth and filling the earth. Days one to three are given to the work of forming the earth. Days four to six are given to the work of filling the earth. There's this symmetry in how the days go together. They correspond. There's on the screen, I'll show you this. On day one, God does the work of forming and distinguishing between darkness and light. On day four, God does the filling work of placing sun and moon to govern over the day and the night. On day two, God forms by separating sky from sea. And then on day five, this corresponding day, he fills the sky and he fills the sea with birds and fish. On day three, God forms the land and brings forward plants. And then on day six, God fills the land with animals and humanity. And one of the things you see happening as the days of creation roll forward into day six with the creation of man and woman is that up until that point, everything that comes forward, light or sorry, uh, plants and fish and animals, were all given life with this phrase. You see it show up multiple times according to its kind. I'll show you in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 21, And God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm. How? According to their kinds he did that. And every winged bird, the same thing, according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth, according to their kinds, and it was so. And so all of this is happening until the final act on day six where God creates man and woman of an altogether different kind. You get that phrase to sort of lead you into the rhythm until it's interrupted, and now you have something else coming forward. Man and woman after the likeness of God. Verse 26, And then God said, Let us make man after our image, after a completely different kind, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And so next week we're going to have an entire sermon just given to what it means to be made in the image of God. But I want to say this in regards to creation. In those mythologies, those ancient stories of creation, humanity humanity was created from this begrudging war of bloodthirsty gods. And, And humanity came forward simply to have this sole purpose to work for the gods, to supply them food because they were tired of feeding themselves. And so humanity was made to supply for the gods through their sacrifices. And yet here in Genesis, Elohim doesn't create humanity out of frustration. You and I weren't made because of some frustration of bloodthirsty gods trying to meet their own needs. Elohim creates out of delight. Man and woman aren't so much working for God because God doesn't need anything from us. Instead, our purpose is to care for creation and to reflect what God is like through our lives to the rest of creation. You see how this would have been a completely different understanding for Israel, how they viewed themselves, how they interacted with their purpose in the world. For 400 years, as slaves, they had been told that their whole worth was tied up into how many bricks they could make, how much work they could get done, and that the gods made them for the purpose of providing them food. But here in Genesis one, it's flipped. God provides food for them and they are blessed as image bearers of the most high God. My point here, is that what we find in Genesis one is not just a wildly different story than you'll find anywhere else, it's a wildly better story than you'll find anywhere else, it's true. And so again, if the early Hebrew audience would have been looking for meaning, why the heavens and the earth? Not so much how the heavens and the earth were created, what they find in Genesis one is that creation is coming from the all-sufficient goodness of God alone as sort of a display of what he's like, not at the hands of many gods or the angry gods. And they also find that Elohim is unrivaled. They find that they were created with dignity and honor simply because they were made to reflect what God is like in the world. And so here's what this means for us. (laughs) The questions of who are you? The question of what are you for? Those aren't questions that you can answer by going somewhere else to discover something or look inside of yourself to self-create those answers to those questions. You can't answer identity or purpose by looking to yourself. You answer identity and purpose by looking outside of yourself to the one who offered yourself to you, God himself. We'll talk again more about that next week, but this gets us to our final turn today, goodness and blessing and rest. I've got four kids at the house, I think I may have mentioned that around here, and my three younger ones are still at the age where they'll just simply wear you down to make sure you hear them. And they'll say your name over and over and over and over and over again until you finally turn and pay attention. And so with four kids, a word at the Kinzer house is like an act of survival, right? Uh, It's like an act of survival, only strong survive. And the way that you get heard is through repetition. That's how you get heard. And I mention that to say that the same is true with any reading of this chapter. The repetition of words and phrases are like breadcrumbs bread meant to lead you along. So as I mentioned, Elohim is named 35 times. The phrase, and God said, mentioned 10 times. You get this refrain, there was evening and there was morning. And there's one more phrase that sticks out, and it's this phrase, it was good. It was good. At the end of each day's work, you get this phrase, and it all leads to verse 31. And God saw everything that he made. He saw everything that he made, and behold, like I want your attention for a second, behold, it was very good. And there is evening and morning on the sixth day. It's worth noticing that before the Bible says anything about evil, Before the Bible says anything about wreckage or fracture or sin or pain or any of those things, the word that is offered by God Himself over creation is, "It was very good." And so here's what this means: like the tone of this passage. If you were just to read this passage on your own, don't read it like Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This isn't a bland. This isn't a bland tone. This is a tone of celebration and joy. God is busting with delight at creation. And yet that isn't even the highlight of this passage. You would just see the tone of God like he is delighted. That must be what we should worship him about. No, the crescendo of all of this isn't the creation of man or woman, the image of God. Sometimes we think that's the crescendo. The crescendo isn't God's good assessment of creation. All of this is driving toward, all of this is pointing, the crescendo of all of this is day seven. Day seven is the point why? Because all the other days, as we showed, they have a pair. All the other days have a match. There's only one day that God blesses. There's only one day that God sets apart as special. Listen, there's only one day that has no end. There's only one day where you don't see the refrain, there was evening and there was morning. Day seven does has no end. Look at verse, chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of the work that he'd done. And here it is. So he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here is the glimpse that now puts the whole work into perspective. The forming and the filling of creation was, in effect, God building Himself a temple, creation as a temple where He intended to dwell, to be worshiped, to be enjoyed. And it was common in those ancient mythologies for the gods to come and visit humanity in their temples on day seven to get from humans what they had demanded from them. Yet in Genesis, God rests in the temple of Eden not to get from his people, but to simply be with them and to enjoy his creation along with them. That's what's happening here. And so the reason there's no end on the seventh day is because it was God's intention that the seventh day would never end. It was God's intention that it would never end. That every day after that would be lived out of, out of this day, informed by this day, impressed by this day, moved by this day. It was meant to be an open-ended, open-ended invitation to be with God, to enjoy his presence, with him in his world forever. And yet, <laughs> two pages over in your Bible, that plan is frustrated. Man and woman do what had been forbidden. Sin enters in. The fracture enters in. Pain enters in. But I want you to hear today as we close that not even sin will destroy the original intention of the Father to rest with his people and us with him. Because that's what's driving the arrival of Jesus In our Bibles, the pages move forward and we see the creation account show up again. In John chapter one, his gospel opens like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things that were made were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father who didn't come with judgment and a fist, but he came with grace and truth. What's happening here, this is the maker. This is the maker on a mission to remake his people from the effects of sin to be with him forever. This is the creator writing himself into the story to recreate fellowship again. You know how it goes down. It all went wrong by a tree in the beginning. It all went wrong by a tree, but by the Father's will, it all gets set back to right by a tree. Where the Son bears our curse for sin being stapled there. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 11? Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Hey, are you weary and burdened from your sin? Are you weary and burdened from living your life on the performance treadmill, trying to get on the right side of God's good graces, trying to prove yourself to both yourself and to other people, and maybe even to God? Are you weary and burdened from trying to patchwork a life together so that you can feel better about yourself? All of you who are weary and burdened, he says, come to me. Why? Because I will give you what? Rest. This is the seventh day being made open again. This is where everything is headed. Guys, this is where we're headed. For all who look to Jesus, Revelation 21 and verse three, and then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the ark of scripture. This is where it's all, we've gone from creation to new creation We've gone from Genesis to Revelation. Elohim is in his renewed garden temple, resting with his people, and his people enjoying him in his world together forever. And so, where this whole thing is dri- driving, where this whole thing is going, is the way God intended it to be in the beginning. The story of creation is not so much about the literalness of six days the story of creation is about the literalness of an invitation to the presence of God to be with him forever. (laughs) The message of the Bible finds its conclusion at the end of chapter one, and the rest of scripture is just driving us to that conclusion, the presence of God. So here's my question as I wrap up today. Where in your life are you bucking against the presence of God? Me too, by the way. But where in your life are you aware of God? You believe in God, but you're doing your best not to deal with God? Where in your life is it enough for you simply to believe Him, but you shelf Him in effort to say, I'll just deal with you later when I really need it? Where in your life are you living according to just the patterns of productivity? in self-management, but not out of presence with God and letting that form your productivity and how you understand yourself. You see, if you're trying to buck the presence of God, you are bucking the purpose of creation. (laughs) God made all of this. You can't escape him. You won't escape him. You're living in his world after all recognize the invitation of all that he's given is to actually be with you and you with him in his world this is the first time of many that we're going to find this in our study of genesis that knowing where we've come from helps us to know where we're going let's pray together Father, as we pray today, I feel it even in me to say, would you please forgive me? (laughs) Would you please forgive me for making creation and the beauty of sunsets about something that I consume but has nothing to do with you? Would you forgive me? Would you forgive us for all the ways we make this world about a kingdom for us to build for ourselves and not about presence with you. Father, would you help us to return to the prayer we prayed at the beginning, hallowed be thy name. We are your people, we're in your world, and we were made for your presence. Forgive us for all the ways we try to hide from you or just not deal with you. Forgive us for where we're content to believe in you, but not to enjoy you. God, thank you that we can't escape you. That is such good news. Catch us in our drift and pull us back. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.